This morning's text can be found in the book of Luke, chapter 8, verses 11 through 18. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God, and those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they may not believe and be saved. And those on the rocky soil are those who... When they hear, receive the word with joy, and, that, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, <clears throat> and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries of riches and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. And the seeds in the good soil... These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand in order that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that shall not become evident nor anything secret that shall not be known and come to light. Therefore, take care how you listen. For whoever has, to him shall more be given. And those who have not, who have not, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. Father, before I try to take up this text one more time, and unfold it for your people. I pray that you would come and grant me to speak the truth, grant me to speak in biblical faithfulness and balance, grant me to speak with love and with a special anointing of power for the sake of penetrating hearts. I know that many have undertaken to get their hearts ready because of the high call of hearing the Word of God. But some, Lord, have not and need very special grace right now to hear. And I ask for that grace. So for myself and for all who hear, I pray your assistance in mercy that those who are without Christ in this room right now would be saved through faith. And those who are babes would grow up. And those who are strong would be empowered and emboldened for another week of faithful service to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today's message is the conclusion and application of last Sunday's sermon which was also on this text. Now you recall last Sunday I left out verses 16 and 17 in the exposition. And I pointed out that the main point of verses 4 to 18 was hearing, not preaching. And so it was a follow-on from the message on preaching the week before. The parable came to an end in verse 8. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
And then the application and interpretation of the parable comes to an end in verse 18. Take heed how you hear. Now, verses 16 and 17 seem at first out of place because they shift the metaphor from seeds sown to light shining. And yet, Luke obviously considers them to be part of the parable because the conclusion of the parable comes after those two verses in verse 18, not before them. Take heed how you hear. So let's read verses 16 and 17 and see if we can understand what's going on here. Now, no one after lighting a lamp. Now, before I read it, maybe I should remind you, verse 15 has said that the good soil, the one responsive kind of hearing, bore fruit in perseverance or endurance. So what follows upon good soil, hearing unto perseverance and fruit bearing are these words. Now, no one after lighting a lamp, see, shifting metaphors from seed sown and fruit born to lamp lit. Now, no one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Now, I think there are two things Paul's doing with these two verses, verses 16 and 17. The first thing he's doing is telling us that the fruit of verse 15 is the light of the world, which is no surprise at all, is it? Because other places in the New Testament, fruit-bearing is good deeds. Bear fruit in good deeds. Colossians 1.10, Luke, um, let's see, I wrote it down, 3, 8 to 9, So when you bear fruit in your life, you do good things. Then, in Matthew 5.16, we all know, Let your light so shine before men, Jesus said, that they may see your what? Your good works or your good deeds. Your fruit. So there, in, in Jesus' mind, there's not a big jump from fruit to light. Fruit is good deeds. Good deeds are the outshining of your faith, and those deeds are light. So, what he's saying here in verse 16 is that when the Word of God lands on a good heart, what happens is faith that begins to show itself in fruitfulness, which can be described as light that cannot be hidden and ought to be put on a lampstand for those who are entering the kingdom to see and get help from. That's what Jesus said in verse 16 of Matthew 5, that men may see it and give glory to God as they enter into that experience of worship. That's the first thing he's doing. It's connecting fruit-bearing with good deeds which are the light of the world. Now, the second thing he's doing is correcting, I think, a misunderstanding of that shocking word back in verses 9 and 10, 
where it said, look at verse 10, you remember it. When they asked him the meaning of the parable, he said, To you it has been granted to know, to you, my disciples, it, it has been given freely to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And I said, the meaning of that is, this is a judgment. Judgment is breaking into this age, and there are people who in this age already run out of time. And God speaks in ways so that they do not understand. And he's done with them. He hands them over to a debased mind, Romans 1, 24, 26, 28, and gives up on them. They have committed the unpardonable sin by resisting the Holy Spirit up to a point where he says, I'm finished with you. That's a terrifying word. And it might make you think, well, God's into hiding things. He's a hiding God. Now, along comes verses 16 and 17. And in verse 16, we have this word, Don't hide it once I've given it. If you are among the disciples and you get it right and it goes into your good soil and it grows up, don't put your fruit away and don't hide your light. Let's just read this now so you hear it. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it. Now, they might say to Jesus, you're covering it. Now, Jesus, I think, would respond to them if they said that. You're covering it. You said so in verse 10. I think Jesus would say, I'm God. I pass judgment. I decide when forgiveness is granted and withheld. I know the season for hearing and the season for silence. That's none of your business. You preach. You preach! I decide who hears. You preach. You open your mouth and don't let any danger and don't let any speculation about who the hearers are out there deter you. You open your mouth and scatter that seed on good soil, bad soil, paths, everywhere. Okay? That's what I think Jesus would say. And then verse 17 gives his reason. Nothing is hidden that will not become evident. So there you have the hint, okay, it has been hidden. Okay, there is a season. There is a way that I am talking in this context of my earthly life that is not fully open. Remember how people came to him and he healed me. He said, don't tell anybody. <laughs> don't tell anybody. In other words, I just read this morning with the family, the, the uh, transfiguration. They come down from the transfiguration. They've seen Jesus shine like the sun. And he says, don't say anything until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So yes, there's a season of hiddenness in the, the coming of Jesus into the world. But the point of this text is the season ends with Jesus. He sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Even some of them are under judgment. But when he is risen, the word is, go make disciples of the nations. And so, verse 17, nothing is hidden that will not become evident, 
nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Or here's what it says in Matthew 10, 27. What I tell you in the darkness, Jesus says, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. That's clear. So when he says, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, verse 9. He doesn't mean, and you all go find another little group and tell your secret and find another little group and tell your secret. Don't do it like I'm doing it. You're not Christ. You are a servant and my instruction is, get on the housetops and shout it out and scatter your seed indiscriminately. So, in conclusion, before I give you the ten point application. The point of this parable is not just your salvation hangs on how you hear, verse 12, your fruitfulness hangs on how you hear, verse 15, but also the spread of the gospel hangs on how you hear, verses 16 and 17, and ultimately the glory of God hangs on how you hear, Matthew 5, 16. That's this parable. So hearing, this is last week's point, Hearing is a big deal. Preaching is a big deal. Okay, that's my job. You know your job. It's one of your jobs. Hearing the Word of God. And how you do it is huge. All right. So ten concluding practical applications for how to hear the Word of God in this service on Sunday morning, beginning Saturday night. All right, are you ready? We got to go through these pretty quickly because each one could be a sermon, but I don't have a sermon for each one. I'll give you one word or maybe two words for each of these so you can make a list. I might put them in the star this week too, I'm not sure. And then I'll give you a sentence and then I'll give you a little teeny exposition for each one. Number one, pray. Pray that God would give you a good and honest heart described in verse 15. Do that Saturday night. Do that Sunday morning. Carve out, if you can only manage 20 seconds of solitude, carve it out and pray for a heart like this. Now, the reason I say you should pray is because the Bible teaches that that heart is a gift of God. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart, says the Lord. Jeremiah 24, 7 I will give them a heart to know me. Do you want a heart when you come into this room to know the God I'm preaching? If you do, ask him for it. Ask him for that heart over and over. Number two, meditate. Meditate on the word of God. That is, read portions of your Bible with a view to stirring up hunger for God. I'm going to give you a little vocabulary quiz here. There's no trick to this at all, so just be free and honest. How many have ever heard the word appetizer? Raise your hand. Okay, everybody knows the word appetizer. Now, be honest here. How many have ever heard the word appetize? Raise your hand. Really? That's remarkable. It's not in the dictionary. I looked it up. Because I thought it, it should be, because appetizer is one who appetizes, or a, a fruit bowl that appetizes. It's not a word in the English language. 
But I'm going to make it one. Right now. And the rest of you who raised your hand that you already heard it, somebody else already made it a word, I guess. So I'm going to make it a word. And I'm going to say that your duty on Saturday night is to appetize your heart. By eating an appetizer for the sermon. Now you can use the star for this when we announce the text ahead of time. If I get it to the star editor, my wife, uh, ahead of time. But any text will do, especially the Psalms. Just get yourself a morsel of the word. Put it on your tongue and appetize your heart. Now, appetize, here's my definition of this new word. To appetize is to stimulate appetite. To appetize is to stimulate appetite. I can't believe it's not a word. It ought to be a word. We will now use it at Bethlehem. And maybe it'll spread and in the next edition of the Webster's, it'll be there because we started it or whoever started it. Appetize means take some word, put it in your heart and mind, and let it begin the juices to flow so that when you walk into this room, there's a spiritual hunger on you. If you try to start it cold, you'll be way into the service and maybe never make it before you have spiritual hunger. Number three, purify. Purify your mind by turning away from worldly entertainment. James 1.21 Put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. In humility, receive the implanted word. You see the connection? Put aside filthiness, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So how do you receive the implanted word? I think it's called an implanted word because for most of you it's there. It's in your heart. It's already taken root. I assume that most people in this room are believers. The word has taken root. It's in your heart. Now you need to fight to hear afresh. And you do it by putting aside all filthiness. Frankly, brothers and sisters, I'm astonished at how many Christians watch the same banal, empty, silly, Trivial, titillating, suggestive, immodest TV shows that everybody else watches. I'm, sh- I'm shocked. I'm ashamed of the Christian church. I was talking with one of you um, a few months ago, I think it was, out on the steps right over there after service, who said, when she found out that one of her friends watched NYPD Blue, she said, you watch that? And she said, well, everybody watches that. Our pastor watches that. He told us he watches that. And the member of our church looked at me and said, should I be shocked at that? She thought my being shocked was shocking. And I said, you should be shocked. You should be shocked. There's a simple reason for this. You wonder why your spiritual lives are weak. You wonder why worship is shallow and lacking in intensity. If you really want the Word of God to burn in your heart, you can't put the same crap 
in your heart that the world puts in night after night. It's silly, it's empty, it's banal, it's trivial, it's titillating, it's suggestive, it's immodest. And believe me, you don't get off innocent. You don't get off clean. If you want to meet God, I mean, many people don't. Let's face it. Many Christians are not interested in intensifying their lives for God. They're not. Which may mean they're not Christians. Or it may mean that they're in some little temporary phase of backsliding that God might awaken them. But if you want to intensify your life with God, if you want to know God, if you want to come in this room red hot for God and meet God and grow in God and see God, taste God and love God and hope in God and treasure God and know God with unashamed and assured power, then you got to do what Philippians 4, 8 says. Set your minds on and think about things that are true and great and beautiful and pure and honorable and excellent and worthy of praise, which means basically on Saturday night, turn it off and read a good book. Read the Bible, meditate on the hymn book, memorize a hymn, transform your life. Memorize a hymn. Why would you feed on the world the night before meeting Almighty God in worship, I ask you? And watch your heart unshrivel and begin to hunger. Number four, trust the truth you already have. Trust the truth you already have. The second soil, you remember it, died because it had no root. The seed died because it had no root. What's the root? Jeremiah 17, 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by water that extends its roots to the stream. You want root when you walk in here in the morning so that your tree of hearing doesn't go flop when you get more bad cancer news? You've got to send down your root in the Word. By trusting it. Not just meditating on it, but here's here's what you should do. I do this every morning. I get up 5 o'clock on Sunday morning. I fight the same battles you fight. I'm not spring-loaded to trust God on Sunday morning. i got to have about three hours with God before I come to you folks. And I don't fiddle around. I'm looking for promises for this moment. And then I trust Him. I take hold of Him and I plead, God, help me to believe this. Help me to trust You. So this morning, this morning read a f- three or four Psalms. And one of them was, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my help 
and my God. And I just took those last two phrases as promised, and that's what I think they are. My help and my God. And I just said, Lord, you're my help. You've been my help for 17 plus years in this thing called preaching. You've been my God. And I believe, I believe you will be it again. And in that I come to you. And that's the way you come to this service. You can do that. You fight for faith in what you already know and come to get more and more and more. And we grow together as a people under the Word of God. Number five, get a good night's rest on Saturday night. Now, I know, Doug, that you work all night Saturday. (laughs) And I know Doug is not alone. And to Doug and the others of you who have to work all night on Saturday, I say, I thank God you're here. <laughs> and God has a special blessing for you. you got to go home, shower up, grab a bite, rush off to choir practice. Awesome. God has blessing for people like that. And he will do extraordinary things. There are graces for every kind of critical need in the Christian life. But... I'm talking to the ordinary among us who make choices about when we go to bed on Saturday night, and usually very bad ones. You know why? Because going to bed is much harder than getting up. Now, I know you're thinking, oh, it's not. You don't know the way I'm wired. Oh, yes, I do know the way you're wired, and what I mean is this. Of course, physically, it's harder to get out of bed in the morning. But the decision is made because you got to get to work or you got to get to church. And so you do it. But nobody's making you go to bed. No alarm goes off and says, oh, there it is. Crawl into bed. Nobody's doing it. And so the TV feels good. The book feels good. The conversation feels good. The risk game feels good or whatever you're doing with your friends. It feels so good and sleep is just colossally boring. And so last thing we want to do is go to bed on Friday night. I know there are exceptions to that. Well, listen. Our emotions are dulled. Our minds are not quick. Our proneness to discouragement and hopelessness is greater. Our, our fuse is shorter. Our temper is quicker. Everything is worse on Sunday morning for having five hours instead of seven or eight hours of sleep. So, very practically, here's what I would like to pastorally exhort you to do. Do a little computation. When on Sunday morning must I get up to get dressed and shower and eat and get the family ready and make sure the car is running and the driveway is plowed and and uh, have my 20 seconds of prayer or my 20 minutes of meditation and prayer. Compute back and say, oh, that okay, that means 6.30 or 7 or 7.30 or whatever. And, and then back up from there, 7 or 8 hours. And be sure that you're in bed 15 minutes before that reading your Bible. And I can guarantee if you're reading your Bible, you'll fall asleep. 
Satan will see to it. Which is okay. We can let Satan service, just like he does in 2 Corinthians 12. Satan is God's lackey. He's on a leash. He does what God wants him to do. And if he puts you to sleep as soon as you start reading the Bible, use it. Use it to get a good night's rest. It's great to go to sleep with the word on your lips and in your mind. And then you'll get up more refreshed and you won't be so crabby with the family at breakfast. And you'll have more energy to sing when you come in here. And you'll have more alertness to listen to this message. That's not a joke. That point is not a joke. I'm not a good example here. I, I do not get eight hours of sleep. I get up real early and I'm generally preparing till 10 or so later and I don't get eight hours of sleep. But I take naps on Sunday afternoon and I'll tell you my juices are flowing on Sunday morning. If I had to sit where you are, kind of passive, I'd have to get more sleep probably than I do. Number six. Forbear. Forbear one another. I have mainly the families in mind without grumbling or criticism on Sunday morning and Saturday night. Psalm 106 verse 25 says, They grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. They grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. A lot of Sunday mornings are ruined, aren't they? By a sharp word at the breakfast table. Or, you're never on time. Or, don't you know we have to get going? Or, get out of bed. Or, why do you hang your pajamas there? Or, whatever. Just ruined. Now, here's my suggestion. Um, if you feel like there is a confrontation that needs to happen because of disappointment or frustration, things aren't going right, kids aren't doing right, spouse isn't doing right, or roommate isn't doing right, forbear until Sunday afternoon. For this reason, those kinds of encounters on Sunday morning are are used by the devil to make things much more worse than they have to be and to destroy worship for husband, wife, children. Second reason, if you expose yourself to God with this spirit, not hypocrisy, don't, don't hear me saying, oh, you want us to put on a nice good face and come to church like there's nothing wrong in this family. We don't have problems in Bethlehem. I've heard people say that. You don't have problems in Bethlehem. That's not true. Everybody in this room, if I took all the pain and all the anger and all the frustration and all the disappointment in marriage, this isn't marriage, not parenting, not job, not health, just marriage, and put it in a scale, it'd break the scale. It'd break the scale this morning. We know this. Okay? We know this. I'm not asking for hypocrisy here. I'm asking for wisdom and forbearance that says this. I'm coming to church this morning, not with a plastic face that says there's no problems. I'm coming in faith that says, before I take this up this afternoon, and we have another go at it, and we try to work this out, and all the pain is laid out on the table again, I'm going to put myself before God and say, Lord, help me see the log in my eye. This is not hypocrisy, folks. 
to come into a room knowing that there's a problem, knowing that there's anger, knowing that there's frustration, knowing that there's disappointment, knowing that there's a broken heart inside me, inside her, or wherever else, and saying, Lord, if I were to talk about this now, I wouldn't see my log, I'd only see that speck. And you've told me to get the log out of my eye first. I don't feel like getting the log out of my eye. It doesn't look like a log. It looks like a speck in her log. You need heart work, right? That's, that's one of the things that happens in worship. God comes to you, sometimes forcefully, sometimes tenderly, and He lets you see things like they really are, which doesn't solve all your problems, but it gives you a better perspective on how to move toward a solution. You'll have more to take it up if you forbear. Number seven, come in a spirit of meek teachability. That word meek is in James 1.21. Receive the implanted word in Meekness. Come into this room with the spirit of meek teachability. I do not say gullibility. You got your brain and you got your Bible. You're protected against John Piper, okay? If over time you harbor suspicion that John Preacher Piper gives you bad guidance from the word you need to confront me, and if I don't change, you need another church. But don't keep coming Sunday after Sunday feeling, I'm suspicious about this exposition. If you, if you got a, there's a name for it today called the hermeneutics of suspicion. If you're, if you're always second guessing and saying, this is really not good what we're getting. Now that may be happening on any given Sunday morning. I don't, I'm no perfect preacher. But if over time you feel like this is not biblical, he's not a biblical preacher, then you need to come to me or come to the elders. You don't have to come straight to me. Go to an elder. There's 20 of them. And uh, they're on the back of the bulletin this morning. There they are. Just find one that you know and say, you guys, you guys check John out. You stay on top of him. You call him to account when he says this sort of thing. Should he have said the word crap a minute ago? I know I'm going to get mail on there. <laughs> I meant what I said. Um, you do that, and, and that's good. You need to do that. I need to be accountable to these elders. I am accountable to them. They're not pushovers. However, if over time they say, yes, we watch him, yes, we talk, yes, we correct him, and you still don't get it or like it, then probably you need another shepherd or you need a change. That's the other possibility. But come, if you can, come with a meek, teachable spirit. Number eight, as you enter the room, now we're getting right down to the last, the last moments of preparation. As you enter the room, be still and focus your mind's attention and your heart's affection on God. So the, the key phrase there is be still. Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. Now, 
I'm pleading for um, a, a, an atmosphere during the prelude. This is what I'm asking for. An atmosphere that would be characterized like this. Maybe you can remember this one. Let's be a people who come on the lookout for God and leave on the lookout for people. In other words, let's let the prelude be an aggressive pursuit of God and the postlude be an aggressive pursuit of people. I do not think our church will be an unfriendly church if during the prelude, as you come through those double doors from the wonderful buzz of the commons, if as you come through those double doors, you walk into an atmosphere of pursuit of God, going hard after God. One of the best ways you can communicate that to others is by bowing over your Bible and by meditating and praying and saying, Oh God, John's downstairs, help him. The choir's downstairs, help him. The, the worship team is downstairs, help him. Bless Carol in her playing. Just bless Chuck in her preparation. Bless the worship team. Those around me here, God, get our attention. Make us ready to meet you. And all of us collectively go hard after God during those prelude moments in this room. And then when the service is over and the benediction is pronounced and we begin to move out, our eyes with love and boldness are just looking for people we don't know. Hello, my name's John. Are you new here? No, I've been here 20 years. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but I haven't met you. What's your name? And not worry at all about getting egg on our faces and that's what worship has done for us, among many, many other things. Made us bold, risk-taking pursuers of people in love. I don't think there are many times in life when, as a people, we are blood-earnest for God. There are many light and chipper moments in life. That's all TV is, light and chipper moments in its entertainment portion. We got enough of that. Where in the life of the body of Christ are we blood earnest after God? He's great. He's holy. He holds the universe in being by the word of his power. He throws out galaxies by the ends of his fingertips. He whispers and there's a thunderclap. Where do we get quiet before such a God and know him in his greatness? And I would just plead that Sunday morning be something like that during the prelude. Let's go hard after God together. Number nine, think earnestly. Think about what is sung and prayed and preached. The Bible says, Do not be children in your thinking. Be babes in evil, but in your thinking be mature. 1 Corinthians 14, 20. And Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.7, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. And so I plead with you, don't leave your brain at home. And if you left it in high school, go back and get it. And put it on your shoulders and use it for the sake of the Word of God. God gave you a brain to use. I preach to your brain in order that your heart will be stirred. Finally, number 10. Desire. 
That's the key word for number 10. Desire the truth of God's word more than you desire money and more than you desire food. And I get that. We've already read it in our corporate reading this morning. Psalm 19.10. More to be desired are the words of God than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them is great reward. That's number 10. Desire. Come into this room desiring. I aim to spread a banquet as best as I can for the desires of your heart on Sunday morning. So does Chuck and the team as we put together avenues of getting to God. We're not going to God to enrich Him. We're going to God to magnify His sufficiency by drinking from Him. And that's the way we listen in preaching. Get hungry. Appetize your heart. Desire Him. Be like Proverbs 2, 3, and 5. If you cry out for insight, if you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand and fear the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Folks, this is the end of my series on worship, which we began last November. And my prayer as we end it, is that in these moments together in corporate worship on Sunday morning, God will do thunderous things among us. I got a letter. The person may be in the room right now. I wish I knew who you were. Introduce yourself to me if I'm talking about you right now. I got a letter from a man. He said, I received forgiveness of sins in your service last Sunday. And he ended his one-page handwritten letter. And he said, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. Folks, miracles are happening in these services. Miracles are happening. Pray for the people around you. If you're solid in the Lord, ask God to make everybody else solid in the Lord. If you're breaking free from sin, ask Him to break others free. If you found Christ 50 years ago, ask Him that others would find Christ in the next five minutes. Don't be passive in this room. Let's worship actively. Let's seek the Lord to come in power Sunday after Sunday after Sunday so that there's a reverberation to the neighborhoods and a reverberation through the swam team to the Manica people and to the ends of the earth. Now, as you go this morning, be on the lookout for people and reach into your pocket and pull out a dollar bill and let's make Rob Boyd know we love him. Would you stand for a benediction? Oh, Father in heaven, I pray for hearts to hear, minds to understand, for hearts to risk right now greeting people, loving people, folding in newcomers and meeting people who've been here 20 years that we've never met before. Lord, I pray for courage and freedom and openness and for those marriages and those parents who got to do some hard work this afternoon in a relational problem. Just bless them. God, bless them. Help them. May the Spirit come in power. May the log be seen as a log and the speck be seen as a speck. Oh, Lord. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. Give you a heart to hear and give you peace. And all the people said, Amen.